Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, if that didn't wake you up, I don't know what will. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. My name is Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I find truly inspiring, will hopefully leave you truly inspired as well. My goal is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell or who have achieved something remarkable in their lives and through their story, hopefully get inspired myself, perhaps inspire you too. I'm really inspired by my opening music there. It's written by a guy you can find on Twitter. He's at Toehider, T-O-E-H-I-D-E-R. He's an incredibly talented musician. He lives in Melbourne. He and I have never met. We're proper Twitter friends. We've never met, but uh, only communicated through email. Never even spoke on the phone, but he he wrote that for me. Uh, here's something you didn't know, you didn't know until now. The riff, which you just heard, which uh, you've probably heard for the first time without any talking over it, um, actually spells out Osher in Morse code because that's the kind of guy Toehider is, and I love him for it. Thank you to everybody that tweeted out about the Dr. Carl episode last week. It was the biggest show that I've had so far. My stats were through the roof. Uh, that really kind of was exciting and frightening all at once that so many people listen to this show. Thank you so, 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 so much to everybody that tweeted uh, a link or shared on Facebook the link to that show. That's how we get the word out. That's how I get the word out about this show. I don't do any promotion anywhere except for online, so... If you're able to tweet out about this show, if you want to, if it's for you, I would be very, very grateful. Just reach into your pocket if you're listening to this on the podcast app on iPhone or, or on, a, on an Android. Just click share and just tweet out to your network or the people on your Facebook that you're listening to it. Um, extra special super request this week. If you feel like it, if you don't have to do it, but if you'd like to, inside the podcast app, if you search Osher Ginsberg and you write a review, 
for this show, that would be super awesome. You don't have to. I just want you to listen. That's all I ask. Just listen. Subscribe. But listen, mostly. Um, that'd be unreal. Thank you so, so very, very, very much uh, for, for being here. This is one of the greatest things I've ever done in my career. I'm really grateful for it. My guest today is Michelle Laurie. You can find her on Twitter at Michelle, M-E-S-H-E-L underscore Laurie, L-A-U-R-I-E. Please tweet her. Let her know you heard her here. If she says something during the show that you really resonate with, please let her know you heard her here because she is fantastic. I'm so grateful that over the course of doing this show, I get to connect so deeply with people when we have a chat and she and I get really deep, really deep. I don't know what happened that day in Footscray, but she and I managed to really uncover some stuff. I I told her things that I've never told anyone, ever. And, um, well, certainly in public, Um, but it just felt like the right thing to do um, to talk about that. She and I get really deep. We talk a lot about Indigenous issues in this show, um, which is something you hear me get kind of fired up about. And I do say this, but I do kind of want to reiterate it. I do say this in the interview, but I do want to reiterate it, that it's something I'm passionate about. It's something I think I'm most cranky about because part of me is cranky that I don't know enough about it. And I say that in the show that, you know, I could read a book every day and not know enough still about what's going on or what I can do. But I know that it doesn't sit with me, what's happening at the moment. Um, But yeah, so I don't know enough about it. She knows a lot more than me. So I asked her a lot about it, but occasionally you hear me talk and all I can tell you is that I'm reading. (laughs) I'm reading as much as I can to find out more about it. Um. We talk about sex, we talk about drugs, we talk about the legal and illegal kind of drugs. We talk about depression, anxiety, her path to Buddhism, her profound description of how reframing her view of the world fundamentally changed her entire experience of working in Brisbane and her her career path. And her path to Buddhism is, I should teach it in schools, man. Like the way she describes what her life was like before and after discovering buddhism is really really amazing um she's such an incredible and gracious woman and there's a point at the end of this conversation that michelle actually blogged about um a few years back uh when i got divorced she wrote on her blog about my divorce and i I didn't want to bring it up to her because initially she didn't remember it you'll hear this in the show um but she insisted and and in fact i didn't even want to i didn't even want to air it i didn't even want to put it on the, on the air, but then I thought about it. Um, I ran it past her about mm, two hours ago. I sent her an email and she's like, no, 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 put it out there. And um, when I listened to it, I don't quite know what was going on inside me, but um, it's actually okay. But when I listen back, the only thing that really bothers me about it is that I don't vehemently refute her claims that I have more dignity than anybody else. Um, I don't know what was getting into me that day. I, maybe I was feeling the humility, but I didn't want to say anything. Maybe I was just being a good broadcaster and not speaking so I could get a better edit if I needed to. I don't quite know, but when I listen to it, it sounds like a guy who's sitting there letting someone he's just embarrassed tell him how great he is for not being mad. But then again, I have a terrible struggle with my own self-worth. So I acknowledge that my perception of the situation might be skewed. I just, just I'll let you listen to it and make up your own mind. Um, as I say in the show, all I can strive for is progress, not perfection. But um, she's super cool. 
And I'm really, really, really grateful that I got a chance to sit down for so long and have such a great conversation with this remarkable voice in Australian media. It, you hear me talk about it towards the end, but I'm just super thrilled that this woman with her background, her experience and her worldview has a mouthpiece on one of the largest radio stations in the country. Um, it's really, really exciting really exciting time in Australian radio. It's a really exciting time for Michelle Laurie. She's at Michelle, M-E-S-H-E-L underscore Laurie, L-A-U-R-I-E on Twitter. As you're listening to the show, give her a shout out. Let her know you heard her here. And again, thank you so much for listening. Let's talk to Michelle. I'm dying to hear about Beyonce's new album. Oh. I was so jealous when you said you're just going to jump into it. I thought, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, hi, Michelle Laurie. Hi, Osher Gunsberg. It's Ginsberg, like the poet. Ginsberg. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. Dad went to great pains to tell us that we were related in some distance. Oh, way. really? That's cool. Yeah. It's really cool. And I have been to Morocco, but I haven't stood barefoot on a rooftop <laughs> or been able to grow the beard. <laughs> That's all right. You had a good mo. I did. You had a great mo for I November. did for a little while. Yeah. Um, I'm so stoked that we can do this. Me too. I wanted to talk to you for quite a while. Me too. I think, you know, I really think you're a kindred spirit. And that, that may be over-familiar, but no. I really do. And, and, the, and the name changed sealed it for me. I thought, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, firstly, could you just explain to people, I'm in Melbourne, we're recording this in Melbourne, yep. and we're at the Footscray Community Arts Centre. Yes, we are. Can you explain to people why we're meeting here? Well, because I've got to do a workshop later today for... Um, uh, uh, just next door for Deadly Comedy, which is the Aboriginal uh, project to do with the Melbourne Comedy Festival. So that's why we're here today. But it's pretty good, isn't it? What's it's a beautiful that like? place. I haven't done one yet, so I don't know. You know, I've never, I haven't done many workshops. I, I get sort of, um, I don't, I don't think I'm much of a teacher. <laughs> I think I was meant to be a teacher. So I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. And my friend Kevin Crepinieri was supposed to come and do it with me. He's a great Aboriginal comedian. And so I was kind of thinking, I'll just do what he tells me to do, you know. Uh-huh. But he's not coming now. So uh, I don't know. I don't, we, we had a training day, though. We had this really cool um, sort of cultural training day with this amazing woman who was, you know, part of the Stolen Generation and... It was like the longest I've sat and concentrated for maybe 25 years, but it was so great. And uh, so we were talking to her about, you know, how do you break through that um, shame job feeling that a lot of Aboriginal people have, you know, even when they do something great, they're like, oh, shame job. Oh, God, it's embarrassing. What's shame job? Can it's embarrassing. That? It's like, oh, I'm ashamed. I'm like to have people look at me, even when I'm doing something great and even when they're loving it, it's a shame job. And um, As an Aboriginal person. Yeah, it's just a common expression and a common vibe. And uh, I sort of, I mean, I had a best friend in primary school called Sonia who was an Aboriginal girl and she and her brothers used to say shame job all the time. And I picked it up because, you know, as kids you kind of get really inhibited too, yeah. you know. So it worked as a kid but now now I realise the depth of, of the shame job feeling, you know. And uh, I, I was at Barunga in Northern Territory outside of Catherine for this festival and they had this um, didgeridoo competition and guys were getting up and just slaying it, you know, and hundreds of people just loving it, sick, black, white, everywhere, tourists from overseas. And when they'd finish, they'd go, oh, shame job, you know? What, because they were ashamed that they'd done a good job? Yeah, and because everyone was looking at them. 
and being looked at in adulation is viewed differently in the culture? I don't understand. Apparently, traditionally, it's not. This was part of my training day because I thought it was too. I thought, oh, Aboriginal people are really shy. It's a cultural thing, you know. But they said, no, mate, (laughs) we weren't. (laughs) No, this is... This is a new cultural phenomenon for us, this level of shame about who we are and what we have to say and if we, if we stand out in any way, that's a new thing since settlement. I know, I know, I can see you clutching your chest. Cr- I want to cry hearing that. I want to yeah. cry hearing that. Oh, there were so many tears this day when we had our training, this beautiful lady called Karen and, yeah, lots of tears. Because... About- you're very much about giving back. As I was getting ready for this, I, I, I went to your website, michellelaurie.com, and you're also on Twitter, at Michelle Laurie. Yep. Um, one L. Yeah. M-E. Like, M-E-S-H-E-L. I changed it in grade nine. That's cool. Thanks. If you had the apostrophe, it would be the same as my other favourite Michelle, yeah. Michelle Indigayocello, yep. who's my other favourite Michelle. <laughs> If that's your boyfriend, he wasn't last night. Yep. Go Google that song. Um, but on your website, you're very much about... Uh, giving back, mm-hmm. give time, give stuff, give money. Yep. Why? Uh, I think it's really the meaning of life. I, you know, and I'm not like I didn't come upon that myself. I, I um, realised that through reading and um, studying Buddhism, and in particular. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who just talks very clearly. Tibetan, you know, Buddhism's got different strains, all, all the basics, but but the different countries kind of made it their own way back in the day. So Tibetan Buddhism is uh, very much about altruism and about giving. Mm-hmm. And um, But it's always fun when you go to other Buddhist festivals. You know, I love going to, like, Chinese Buddhist festivals. They're great. They're really pragmatic and scientific, which I love. But the Tibetan is kind of based on their shamanism before Buddhism came, so it's quite mystical and, and stuff. But fundamentally is about altruism and about giving and about what you get out of that. And uh, obviously you get great karma, but also you learn so much, you know, you're never lonely if you fill your life up with, with doing things for other people. I've, I've had to learn that. I've had to learn. Oh, same. We all have to learn it. Yeah. yeah. No one's born knowing that. I've had to learn what it is to be of service selflessly. Yeah. And to be of service um, just rather, because before, before everything went down, I would often give, I would, I would always be very generous, but I would be very generous thinking that something was going to come back to me. Yeah. Directly bounce back like a squash ball from a wall. Yeah. What I've come to realise though is that if I just, just give into the universe, like I'll put in in this post box, but out of that post box, post box over there, that's where the good comes back out. Like yeah. it, it squeezes out of another hole somewhere where you have no idea. Yeah. And if you, if I once I started working to that, everything just got way better. Yeah. Way doesn't it? better. Doesn't it? Like I'm just I will just to be of service completely selflessly to this person or this cause or this person, this thing, and then. You know, later on, oh, green lights. That's nice. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And, of course, in Buddhism, it might come in another life. Ah, So it's like, you know, don't expect to get a green light this afternoon because you did something nice this morning. You might get it millennia from now. But, you know, I've got four-year-old twins, so I can tell you that giving of yourself selflessly is not natural (laughs) because they don't want to do it. You know, you have to learn it. We're we're born wanting. We're born wanting people to give to us, you know, and, and, and wanting to be a bit tight in return. (laughs) 
I reckon. <laughs> you have to learn. You were very sweet. When I was first got to Australia for Batch and I reached out to you to come to this podcast, you sent me your book, Defence Painting Fortnight of Destiny, mm-hmm. which I read, uh, I think, two or three chapters of and then promptly left in the apartment. That's all right. <laughs> that's all right. Maybe that's all you, you know, all it was meant so, to happen. I'm very sorry about that, but I did immediately get a very much of affinity. Uh, you spoke a lot about Rockhampton. Toowoomba is where I grew up. Toowoomba. Well, there was a Rockhampton part, wasn't there? Yeah, there was lots of... Well, we, we went up there with my family when I was little. And, yeah, that's um, the bit that I remember. Yeah, right. Up when, I was first to, when I was first a roadie, yes. um, uh, when I was 17 and I was lifting heavy things and pro, you know procuring hearing damage and hernias, yes. um, I worked at the pub down the street from the pub. <gasps> no, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, in 92. Because it was was it the 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 Royal or the, I think the George? It, I can't even remember. It was now on the left, I, away from the river, on the left. I wrote it in the book, but I mean, I, I had to ask my parents. I it was the it was Aboriginal the, pub? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the guys that don't go to that pub. Don't be careful. <laughs> be careful. And I remember walking past it, and um, this is kind of before I knew much about alcoholism and, and this kind of thing. And I just remember just even thinking now when I think about the darkness mm. that was, and I don't mean that in any way, but just the dark energy. Uh, the negative energy that was coming out of that pub. The shame. Talk about that. Like that was, like, was that your first kind of exposure to the Indigenous Australians? Where did you first learn about, you know, what it was to be an Indigenous Indigenous Australian? Oh, well, I probably still don't know that. But, um, you know, growing up in Queensland, it was, I grew up in a very racist environment. So I grew up hearing bad things about Aboriginal people, all the classics, the government gives them houses and they rip the doors off and burn them in the front yard and all that stuff and why can't my kids have stuff for free that their kids get and all that, you know, just at barbecues and just around the table. Um, so, yeah, certainly, and I know that when when my dad was running pubs in Rockhampton um, and Townsville also, that they had very strict racial policies. They, they wouldn't allow Aboriginal people in. Um, or there were some guys that they deemed good, He's a good black fella, so he can come in. But the, those others, they can't come. So that was, you know, that seeped into me as a small child. But then I met, I, I don't know, somehow, miraculously, it didn't really come back out of me. I don't know. Um, and I met this girl, Sonia, in grade five, who was just the duck's nuts, the sweetest, most beautiful little girl. And she was my best friend. And then I did have an epiphany and I thought, you know, all of you talk so much about what Aboriginal people are like. And I'm the only one with an Aboriginal friend, actually. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what she's like. She's generous, kind, funny, you know. And I'd sort of had those frenemies younger in school who, who I'd get to school one day and they'd say, we're not talking to you. And they wouldn't talk to me for two days. Like, all that girl stuff. But Sonia never did that. Sonia was all about inclusiveness and her brothers and they were all about welcoming you know, um, what was it like when you went over to her house to play? I wasn't allowed much. I wasn't allowed to go over to her house much. Sometimes we'd take Sonia somewhere and we'd sort of drop in because Mum thought Sonia's mum was crazy as well because Sonia's mum never rang to say to do that whole middle class Anglo dance that you do with other mums that I do now, where you got to get to know them and make sure they're cool before you'll let your kids go over there. I've never let my kids play anywhere without me yet, anyway. But you know, so but Sonia's mum never did that. Sonia's mum never rang my mum to check to see if she was crazy or not, and mum thought that was crazy. Ah. So I was never allowed to Sonia's house because that made mum kind of doubt Sonia's mum's, you know, responsibility, right. level of responsibility. So, yeah, I was never allowed to go over and play. But I remember her being, um, you know, a 
beautiful, big, friendly, smiling Aboriginal lady who, when I walked in, just didn't bat an eyelid, just another kid in the house, always kids in the house. And, you know, not that sense of a stranger. Never, ne- I never had that sense of being a stranger around them. I uh, got... I mean, growing up in the middle-class suburbs of Brisbane, I didn't know any Aboriginal people. Mate, just so didn't. many people don't. Just didn't. Yeah. And it wasn't until... It wasn't until much later in my life that I... I was working at Channel V and we went and did a, um, we did a documentary about a band out of Alice Springs called Nocturnal. And, um, yeah, I remember Nocturnal. Yeah, we went out to uh, their... He called her Mum Granny because it was the closest English translation to what this woman was to him. Mm. It was like a combo. Like, yes, she's two generations above me, but she's my Mum Granny. Yeah. Mum Granny. And that's Dad Uncle. Yeah. Like, that's how he spoke about these people. Yeah. And I understood, oh, right, so... I have these two people of authority over me, mum and dad, and grandma's like, well, she's the old frail version we don't listen to. Yes. But in his culture, it's like everyone that's my dad's age has the same authority over me and and above them, and everyone that's my mum's age and above her has the same authority over me. And cares for me equally. Exactly. And loves me, you know. Maybe this is what Sonia's mum was like, oh, it's cool. She's just like another mum, so I don't have to call. I don't have to worry. Yeah. Because she's like me. And also, Sonia, now that I've travelled, you know, I see kids all over the world who have so much more autonomy than we had. You know, I've seen six-year-olds running households in Cambodia, cooking dinner and everything. So I also think that, you know, she just had more faith in Sonia than my mum had in me, you know. She trusted Sonia's, you know, um, instincts about whether or not I was a good person and mum was a good person and whether she was safe with us, you know. Did you did you lose touch or would you? What she happened? moved. Uh-huh. She moved, and that was that was that. And I pined for years. And in fact, as I said in the book, the first thing I did when I got internet access was Google Sonia, and I Google Sonia about once a year, maybe twice a year, <laughs> to try and I just hope she'll be on Facebook or somewhere. I found yeah. a news article once that she and and I and it was unmistakable. I saw her eyes in this photo, and I thought, oh my god, that's Sonia. And it was an article about um, some housing place where she was living and developers wanted to come in and the mm-hmm. residents had a petition, you know. Um, it was on the Sunshine Coast somewhere. Right. But I also think that if I tracked her down, she, if she's anything like what she was like at 10, she'll think I'm nuts and <laughs> she'll think that was years ago. What are, you, what are you talking about? She's very pragmatic, you know. Got it. Yeah. Got so. it. But then, then Toowoomba, as growing up in Brisbane, Toowoomba was this mystical place on the... <laughs> It was two hours away and we always made the stroke, where are we going? We're going to Woomba. Yeah. <laughs> no. And, and I thought Brisbane was just where everything happened, you know, because all of our ads were from Brisbane on TV and everything. So I'm watching ads for the Ecker, for your royal show. I can't go. I'm yeah. watching ads for great shops and stuff. I can't go to any of them. So that... I think that's why I wanted to move. Is that all I could think about was getting out of Toowoomba my whole life. Pre-internet, though, the television was all you had. Did you have five channels or four channels? Oh, yeah. Uh, four. I think, yeah, four. No four. SBS? No. Right. No, I had Channel 2. Yeah. And then the, uh, the other ones. Oh, we had a local channel, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had um, f- oh, something for something. Uh, yeah, and which was pretty daggy and kind of shadowed on your TV. Yeah. Everyone was, was blurred and doubled and Brilliant. lame, you know. But I... Uh, reading about you, I mean, we shared a common thing, and I, I've got. A, I always I talk a lot about uh, on this show about the ABC and about how grateful I am. Now I live without it in America. How yeah. grateful I am that the ABC exists, and whoever was making the cultural and curation decisions there, because so much of who I am and what I appreciate in life came through 
the stuff that didn't resonate with me on 7, 9 and 10 and resonated with me on the ABC and you and I have an affinity for uh, – it was Tuesday night, it was 9.30. Yeah. Uh, I preferred Glenn Nichols. Did you? I preferred Glenn Nichols over Wendy Harmer. We all had one. Yeah, we all had someone. Uh, but yeah, the big gig. Yeah. It was this Tuesday night st- – I had no idea you could just stand there and be funny. Me neither. No, me neither. I didn't know what stand-up comedy was. Absolutely not. And that was what was great about it. It was like a real gig. You know, even doing gigs now, I mean, that's what they're like, mm. you know. Um, one after the other, there's an MC. Yeah, so uh, I never thought I could do it. I never even really thought I wanted to do it. I just thought it was, it'd be great to be part of the, that group of people. I remember having just such a man crush on the Doug Anthony All-Stars. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> Richard Feidler and I were talking about this recently because he's like, oh, God, if only you knew how sad our lives were. <laughs> No, I just wanted to be part of whatever you were doing. He said, we weren't doing anything. We were just kind of doing gigs. And, but, but I thought that Melbourne was this incredible artistic hub, which it is. I mean, look at us sitting in Footscray in a beautiful, you know, artistic facility. Um, so it really is everything I dreamed it was, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I did a, a show with Sandra Sully once. That was, uh, the uh, smartest TV person. It was like a quiz show. Yes, I remember that. And mm. they shot it. In Nunna Warning, they shot it in that studio. And I remember walking in and there was the spiral staircase in the corner. It was the studio they shot Countdown in. Yeah. It was the same studio they yeah. did the big gig. And I was like, and that's where the cockatoo was. Yeah. And I even saw the old mole Richardson crane that used to <laughs> pan around in the intro. And the cockatoo would go Pff, and, and spit it and out. And it's so small, isn't it? That Tiny. room. I mean, I always think of how both on Countdown and the big gig, it looked like a stadium. I mean, there were yeah. stages everywhere and people everywhere. But yeah. when you get in there now, that's where we do Spicks and Specs and all that stuff. Yeah, it's so It's a small. trick of television. Yeah, yeah, mirrors. Mirrors. Yeah, mirrors behind the crowd and beside the crowd. On the side of the crowd, yeah. yeah. Fully. But because I remember watching, I used to get, I had quite a beer in my bonnet about it, that the television, as much as I loved it, never reflected what I saw. Mm-hmm. But I remember watching the cricket going, why are they wearing jumpers? Yeah. <laughs> Because summer to me was like, it's hot as fuck. Yeah, it's yeah. 38 degrees outside. Yeah. How can you be wearing a jumper yeah. playing the ashes? And, yeah. it, and it kind of, I remember that, right? And I remember like watching Big Gig, like, and if you're going to the blah, 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 down in Footscray. Uh, what about what's happening in Brisbane tonight? I know, but I was the opposite. I was like, who cares what's happening in Brisbane? Why aren't I in Footscray? Right. You know, I was always, always wanting to get out. And so what was the, when did you hit the ejector seat? It was like as soon as possible. When did yeah. you get out? Uh, 18, I think. Oh, yeah, 18, I went and lived in Brisbane for a year and because I didn't get into any universities because oh, my... Me too. Yeah, great. <laughs> my scores and everything were so low. And, uh, and then I did a year of something, I can't remember what. And then I auditioned for all the universities for the drama courses and the only one I got accepted into was in Toowoomba. USQ. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So I had to go back. Yeah. But I was only there a year and a half. They turned me away because I was too fat. No. Well, yeah, they were like that. Yeah. Why didn't they turn me? But yeah, it was like that. It was all. It was. It was so physical and so um, judgmental. And well, they wouldn't let me into acting. They put me into the drama oh. stream. You know. So the first year, everyone's doing the same thing, which I love. We're all acting. Second year, I, I got pushed into that more academic kind of. This is where you go if you want to be a teacher, and I didn't want to be a teacher. So I ramped up the drugs and. Uh, <laughs> Which now, now they're not fancy kind of like modern 2013 sexy club drugs. We're talking like probably Toowoomba bad biker speed. Yes, yes, absolutely. And we, yeah, that was it. And I heard of ecstasy, you know, but I didn't know when I knew it. It's this weird thing people talked about on Triple Z that I didn't quite, (laughs) which was the Triple R of Brisbane. Yeah. Or the, what's the Sydney equivalent? FBI, I guess. I don't know. 2SER. 
Yeah. Yeah, Triple Z was great. I did a show there eventually when oh. I moved back to Brisbane. I did Saturday nights there. On the Air Street um, yeah, yeah, studio? Yeah, yeah, unreal. Really, really grungy. Was that your first radio gig? Yeah. What was that like? It was awesome. It was, you know... Um, to, everyone's smoking pot around there. It's you know right in the valley there. It's full grunge, and you go down it's across the road from a sex sauna. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. The den was yeah. across the street, yeah. and you know the guy from Scream Feeders having a <laughs> having a joint and sharing it with someone from you know, and they're bitching about Powderfinger. Even then, it was hilarious that they all hated Powderfinger and. You know? Isn't that sad that even... Cause I remember, you know, we were contemporaries. Our band was contemporaries with Powderfinger and um, we were being looked at because Sony wanted to sign their version of Powderfinger and we were we were being looked at. We were being wow. courted by Sony. That we, There was a couple of bands on that list and we were being courted and we were being taken out and we were being, you know, given wow. tickets to gigs. They eventually signed these three kids from Newcastle who I think I did... They did I think they did okay. Yeah, right. Um, wow. But I remember that. I remember that inside the scene, like... Even this whole, we're supposed to be a tight-knit, we're against you, commercial radio, we're against you, but still fuck you, Powderfinger. Yeah. It's like even then the tall poppy thing was inside the dreadlock brigade. Yeah, absolutely. They used to call them Pufterfinger. Oh, God. (laughs) Which is obviously, I mean, the world's changed a lot in the last 20 years. But at the time, that was hilarious. And, we, you know, I'm a kid. I'm, I'm like, I'm on reception at Triple Z initially. I'm just soaking it up. I wonder if we ever met. Maybe. I was hanging around for a while. What year was this? Oh, 90, 92, 93 maybe? No, it was later that. Yeah, right. Oh, I was later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We and then started. I was in Melbourne, 94. Yeah, I was in Melbourne. I was in, yeah. Mm. Yeah, 94 I'd started. But I, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> that's so sad. That's no. so sad. And they went on to become one of the most successful Australian rock and roll bands in the last 20 years. And hardworking and creative. And I mean, really, honestly, what, what do you got to say about Powderfinger, you know? Why, why are you angry at Powderfinger? Because it's successful and it's yeah. an Australian thing to dislike people who are successful. Yes. Because it's just, oh, that bothers me greatly. I know. We, we can talk about that later. But so your yeah. Triple Z, what, what was the, and so then what was, I've got to get out of Brisbane now. Mm-hmm. What was the, this isn't enough, I have to move further. Uh, oh, I've always had that in me. But, I mean, I was always moving to Melbourne. It really oh, was that okay. the effect of that show and of yeah. <laughs> the effect it had on my, you know, your teenage brain is, is so amazing, I think. It's so powerful. What it takes in stays, I really think. It's growing, it's developing, and it sucks stuff in, and that's really forming you as a human. And that, that's, you know, it, it, it made me, uh, that period of time, convinced me that Melbourne was my spiritual homeland, which I still believe, <laughs> at 40. Yeah, and even I went back to Brisbane and did radio for seven years, but it, there wasn't a day that went by that I wasn't thinking, how can I get back to Melbourne? When will I get back to Melbourne? Is there anything I could do today that would help me get back to Melbourne faster? Wow. Mm. Now, when you finally got to Melbourne, what happened? Well, I'd done a bit of stand-up in Brisbane, and so... Where? At the sit-down comedy club, it was just new, you know. Oh, in Paddington. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was the world's worst stand-up MC there. Yeah, right. Oh, I was the world's worst. I'd never been to a comedy club in my life, and they asked me because I was working at B105. Yeah. And they said, "Oh, can you come and do the stand-up uh, MC here?" I'm like, "Okay." Because there were no comedians, you know. So they started a comedy club with no comedians. So yeah. then they started actually looking for guys. Oh, was this the one in Dockside? Which one was it? Well, Docks- I was at Dockside. Dockside. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Oh, this is the other one in, in, Padding- in Paddington. Yeah. I, I was at. Yeah. Wow, Dockside. What was that like? Ah, uh, it was great. It was pretty rock and roll. It was. Um, 
And, and the, the comedians that they had were a lot of old guys who had day jobs or had businesses or whatever who just all would get up and tell the same jokes as each other. But we're great guys, you know. Um, but then there was a younger breed of us who all just kind of appeared at the same time who, who were taking it seriously, you know, and uh, influenced by what was going on in Melbourne. So we knew to write our own jokes, which a lot of people didn't know when they first came to stand up. I heard Rosie O'Donnell the other day saying that one of her first gigs, she got up and did Seinfeld material for 20 minutes. And when she got off stage, they all went, what are you doing? Because she, she said, her line was, well, Streisand doesn't write her own songs. I didn't know you had to write your own jokes. And a lot of people didn't know that, you wow. know, when they started 20 years ago. So yeah, we, we all knew we had to write our own jokes at least. And we did that. And uh, it was good. I got a lot of gigs, learnt fast, took to it really quickly. Again, maybe it just seeped into my brain as a teenager. Who were your, uh, who were your heroes? Because I know when, I know enough about stand-up. I've got a few mates that are stand-up. So enough about stand-up. When, when you start, you, you kind of, it's like a, being in a band. You kind of have to reach escape velocity so you don't sound like the people you wanted to yes. sound like when you started the band. And it takes a couple of, you have to write a couple of songs or sometimes get an album or two out of the way before you burst through that. Yeah. Uh, so were you, who were you listening to at the time? Judith Lucy was massive. She'd just broken. Um, it's like the Australian Janine Garofalo. Yeah. Call her anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but such a distinct style, such a distinct voice. And so we were always, and every girl who got on stage, they said, oh, she's, she sounds like Judith. And a lot, of, a lot of us didn't, but that was just the idea, you know, that we You're were, a woman and telling jokes. Yeah. You sound like Judith yeah, Lucy. Exactly. This is the length, you've got boobs, you obviously love Judith Lucy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, but I'm sure I did at times, I was fighting against that. And then Julia Morris came to town and blew my mind. She was just the most incredible act I've ever seen to this day. So, yeah, trying not to sound like Julia. Uh, was hard for a while, but she certainly inspired me in terms of her work ethic, and uh, you know, she taught me to just just do as many gigs as she can. She was doing eight gigs a week at that stage at the Comedy Store in Sydney, and it showed. She was bulletproof. There was nothing. There was not a chink in her armour. Then heck, I mean, no one had a chance to heckle. And 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 if you tried, I mean, good luck because she was doing eight gigs a week at the store. She was doing bucks nights, and you know, she was amazing. Right. Yeah. So she, she, from her, I learnt to go and do those hard gigs and try and be bulletproof. Do you remember your first set? No, no, I don't. But I do remember there was a heckler, but he was a very well-meaning heckler, and so we had back and forth banter, and so it was a really great gig. And then second gig did the same jokes, and they went, no one laughed because <laughs> it wasn't the jokes the first time. It was me and this guy. Oh. You know. Um, so yeah, learn a lesson that night as well. Right. Yeah. How much people love it when they think. You're making it up, you know, or, or if you do make it up, if you stand and chat for 20 minutes, they, you get a lot of respect from a crowd for that. Right, well, telling a story. Chatting with them so right. they know that I can't possibly have prepared yeah. what I'm saying because how would I know that guy in the front row was married to the lady from whatever or, you know? Yeah, So yeah. That, that creates an excitement. That's why people love impro, Yeah. you know, and I see impro honestly and think, is that it? You know, I don't, I, I don't really get it, but but I think a crowd just loves the fact that it's there, it's in the moment, oh. it can't be replicated. I do know? use I in in LA. I, I do UCB to keep the blade sharp. I yeah, just right. Take classes and just do it. Yeah, that's where I started. I came through theatre sports, and so everything I learned that I brought to radio, I brought with me from theatre yeah. sports, and then. Uh, yes and bitch All that came from <laughs> yeah. You know To quote Wayne Brady <laughs> yeah. um, All that came in Very very handy in radio Because they were like Wow you're really good on the spot Yeah Because yeah. I've been 
Yeah. So then when I came back to UCB, like watching seven people create a half an hour of theatre off of one word that will never happen again. Yeah. It's like the whole room is in a flow state. Yeah. And everyone is vibing off that. And you don't need to try that hard. Mm. And it's amazing Mm. to know it'll never happen again. Yeah. It's never happened before. It'll never happen again. We're in this room and this thing's only going to happen this one time. Yeah. And if anyone brings a line they've thought of on the way there, it dies in the ass because you can tell it's not from the moment. It's not them just just speaking yeah. their thoughts as the synapses fire. Yeah, yeah. Which is just so thrilling to be a part of. Yeah. It's like watching a juggler throw an extra ball in and almost, you know. <laughs> I think stand-ups, we kind of feel like, well, we do that by ourselves. But you should know that there is a real, maybe not anymore, but certainly from my generation, there, there was a real um, um, thing about theatre sports and jugglers. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was like, Oh, go to theatre sports. Oh, God. It's so theatre sports. Oh, God. And jugglers. Oh, God. Yeah. There was a real snobbery. But, you know, I think a lot of that is because a lot of comedians were such massive losers early in their lives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and kind of. So you get this little bit of power. You finally get a gang of people who really like you and you really like them. And, you know, you're not an outsider. And, yeah, you, you, there's a lot of snobbery in stand up. <laughs> A lot. So did you find that when you got to Melbourne? Was it like a closed shop? Who are you? You can't have gigs? Uh, uh, No, no. um, You know what? If you're good, you're allowed in the gang. And I'd done 10 10 months in Brisbane. So I arrived almost fully formed. You know, I arrived with some good stuff. So I was able to get up at the SB or wherever, do a great 10 minutes. And so I was allowed in the gang. Right. Yeah, from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What are you, like 20? Yep. Wow. Yep, 21, actually, by the time I got to Melbourne, yeah. Blows my mind. I know, but it blew everyone's mind. And so I sort of got used to that, to being this young, to being really young and special. And then one day you're just not, you're just the same. <laughs> you know, one day you're 26 and everyone's like, Pff. yeah. And so I, I know enough stand-ups to know that it's not an enormously financially lucrative gig no. when you're starting. Mm-mm. So what were you doing for cash? We were on the dole. We were all on the dole. It was very different. Yes, then. before work diaries. It yeah, was awesome. yeah, it was so before work. I mean, we used, to, we, we used to just get on the tram to the dole shop with this form in our hands and you'd look as you're passing shops, you'd just write down the name of a shop, wouldn't even put their phone number. Where you applied for a job that yeah. week. Yeah, oh, I tried to get a job at... Gary's Hardware in Elston Week or where, you know, and you just rock up with your form and they'd give you money. So that that's really how stand, the stand-up industry in Melbourne uh, kicked off. And, like, I was on the dole. Yeah. I was on the dole for – and I fucking hated it. It sapped my brain. It made me – talk about shame. I was just oh, – Really? All my mates were in university. Yeah, right. And I was the <laughs> one that, you know, I'm just <sighs> unemployed sitting in my house, like too afraid to leave my house. It was oh. the worst. Well, see, we were all working really hard. So that's how we felt like, you I know. Had nothing to do. Right, okay. It was the worst. We were writing and working and doing things. Nothing smells and... like the DSS office. No, no, in summertime when the cricket's on. You know, because people just hang around and watch the cricket, I guess. I think it's different now, though. My parents are on the dole now, which is hilarious, because at the time, I mean, my father, just the abuse I took for being on the dole from my dad. But now he's 63, can't work anymore, but he's not old enough for the pension, so they put them on the dole. So there's talk about raising the pension age to 67 or even to 70. I, I, I think, you know, what about all those people who are broken well before then? You know, my dad's blind, you know, like he's been a taxi driver for 50 years or whatever, um, 40 years. 
we're not making it that long, actually. There's a secret hidden group of people in their 60s who are on the dole because their body's broken and they can't keep working until 65. So you can raise it to whatever you want to raise it to and you can shuffle the numbers in whichever column you want to shuffle them for your budget, you know? But that's reality. And that's, that's the thing about harshness in public policy, I think, is it's not, it's not real. It's not human. You have to stay human, you know? And, and, and the reality about Aboriginal policy is telling people that they need to get a job and take care of themselves and just, you know... We do it, why can't you? Right, it's not real. It's not people. It's not generational shame and generational trauma. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, yeah. when you've got a mom who was stolen as a kid and, and, and raised in a home and no one picked her up as a child and cuddled her, and she's your mum, everyone's traumatised down the line, you yeah. know? So, yeah, that's that, obviously in this government that we've got at the moment, it's, it's a rising passion in me, you know? Yeah. The, the humanity of, of our communities. And even just an acknowledgement of it. People don't even want to acknowledge it. Many no. people don't even want to accept that it happens and that it's true. And accept that, that it is generational, that we are so much a part of our parents and what they brought to us and what their parents brought to them and what, yeah. you know? So the whole idea of, I didn't do anything to them. I don't have to say sorry. I didn't, you know? It's just not real. It's not real. It's not about the reality of the human condition, you know? Um, what would you say to that person? Meet someone, talk to someone, it's not hard, you know, and now more than ever, Facebook, Twitter, you know, um, there's a great Twitter account, Indigenous X, it's great. It's started by Luke Pearson, every week different person is tweeting from that account. Oh, like Sweden. What's that? Sweden has a different Swedish person. Yes, for that's the, right. the, the for government, the, the government of Sweden yes. has a different. They pick a different person to tweet on behalf of the country every week. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, yes. So, well, Indigenous X is about Indigenous excellence. So you will meet people. The X. Just X. It's indigenous just X. X. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, just just meet, just meet people. Just I knew it at ten. I'm the only one who knows an Aboriginal people. How come you all are sitting around here telling me what they're like? You know what they're into, what, what's wrong with them. You don't know any. It's really hard to have misconceptions about a group of people if you know one of them really well. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's all you've got to do. And, I mean, Aboriginal people are, very, are all different. I'm not saying they are one collective group, you know. But meet, meet one, ask questions, make it your business to know an Aboriginal person and ask, 
That's all. It's a good place to start. It's a great place to start. Break your heart. And the other thing you have to remember is there's a lot of racism on the other side too. Like that's why working in Aboriginal um, sort of outreach or something, whatever it is that I'm trying to do, is a good level up because um, you, I'm not very welcome a lot of the time. <laughs> I'm not congratulated. Not that I, you know, but it's not like it's not like it's a really um, glamorous or. Um, you know, kind of thing to do. It's not like I get a lot of positive feedback. I don't. A lot of people tell me to fuck off. <laughs> a lot of people tell me that they're not interested in my white guilt or helping me assuage that. You know, I get a lot of pushback. So it's, it's a, in, in my way, it's a good place to be because you have to give selflessly because there's not a lot coming back. <laughs> right. You just have to do it because you know it's the right thing to do, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um... I would, I would also encourage people just to... Because when I grew up in Brisbane, there were still Aboriginal people around in the inner city. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to Adelaide, there was still, you know, there was still the folks that sat in the park in the middle of the day in the middle yeah. of the city. But that seems to have... Same in, in, in Sydney, prior to the Olympics, they just kind of casually just kind of yeah. swept everyone away. Same in St Kilda. You just don't see it anymore. Nah. And so it's not visual. But you don't have to go too far out of the main cities... No. ...to, to see it. No, absolutely. And if that's intimidating and confronting, and I understand that, and it is for Aboriginal people sometimes too, to, to approach, you know, those scenarios. Yeah. Again, social media is such a great place to start. Yeah. Facebook, Reconciliation Australia, follow them on Facebook. Go to events. You know, there's, there's events always here at the Footscray Community Arts Centre. To bring my kids and sit on a rug and watch Archie Roach sing and I don't know anyone there, but see my kids play with the kids. Oh, gosh, makes me want to cry now thinking about it. Just makes yeah. me feel good, you know, that to my kids there's no separation. Yeah. Just kids with their yeah. shoes off playing at night time, should be in bed, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. Because I, I guess the other, the other thing is that, you know, a few years ago now, but people, you know, how dare this, you know, this country over here tell us to mind our business at home before we accuse them of human rights violations. And you're like, wow, mm. they're kind of right. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you have a look at the conditions of some of the communities in this country. Yeah. I mean, look, at, you know, and the intervention is such a, I'll say interesting, but that's not, you know, there should be a more emotional word for it, but interesting thing that's playing out right now. Because if you read The Little Children Are Sacred Report, which is online for everyone, everyone to read, it's not long, you can read it quickly, um, it stipulates very clearly, don't try and have one solution for all of these problems. Don't try and just lay down some new laws on all these communities and you run it from Sydney or Canberra. Don't do that. Every community has its own issues. Some of them are in common, some aren't. But, of course, while the government's waving this report around saying, look what they're doing to their children and look how dysfunctional it is and we've got to intervene, um, they ignore the recommendation. Huh. And they lay down these blanket solutions and they run them out of Canberra, you know? They're not all the same people. People, you know, yeah. none of us are the same people. Uh, people living in, white people living in Horsham don't have the same problems I have living in suburban Melbourne. So why would you try and solve both of our problems with one solution. It's crazy. Yeah. I honestly, I don't, I, 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 I'm very passionate about it. I like to think I know a bit about it. I, I don't know enough about it. I could read, uh, you know, every, a book a day for a year and yeah. still not know enough about it. Yeah. Um, well, that's great, the two. That's what but I, I do try and make it my business to, 
to certainly, you know, investigate Aboriginal history and certainly investigate... Oh, what's the book I'm reading? It's on my Kindle. I can't... It's the problem when you have a Kindle. You don't see the yeah. cover every time you pick it up. Yeah. I just know it's the book, the one in there that I was reading about Aboriginal history and it's, it's a revisionist look at... Uh, it's looking at the... Um, uh, from the Aboriginal perspective of the Australian... Uh, they call it an invasion in this book. Yeah. Um, and uh, it just goes a lot to explain... Uh, Aboriginal culture and white perception of Aboriginal culture of like, oh, you're on my land, so therefore your sheep are my sheep, so I'm just going to take your sheep because that's what we do. That's it. And you white people go, you're stealing my sheep, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Like, no, 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 you're on my land. Yeah. Therefore, your things are my things. This is how we do it and this is, this is just it. Yeah. And, but and we can, you know what, we can, we can solve those issues if we talk them through and accept our cultural differences and find, find a compromise. But if we start by shooting people... <laughs> Then there's the conversations out the window. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what's interesting is that I was in, um, having lived in Adelaide a few times in my life, um, the the black skin story in Adelaide is no longer Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. It's now Sub-Saharan African. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is. Well, that's you know the changing face of Australia, and and I love that. I actually love the changing face of Australia because it kind of annihilates all the nationalistic bullshit, this young country where people like to pretend they've been here forever and their roots are in the soil and, uh, you know, it's so racist about other people coming here or, or the people who were here first. And I just think, well, you can jump up and down all you like about boat people or whatever it is, but the fact is Australia's changing. 30 years from now, it won't look like this and the cultural makeup won't be what you want it to be. There's nothing you can do about it, mm. and I really like that. <laughs> I, I, do t- that. I do too. I think I, I really, you know, I, I, I Rupert Murdoch made a speech in Sydney about a month and a half ago or two months ago, and he was very much calling that, um, you know, th- this should be the Australian decade. This next decade could be Australia. And as much as I disagree with, uh, you know, um, some of the things he says, I agree with some of the things he says. This is a tricky thing about the world. You can't just blanketly disagree with someone because mm. you just don't like... Yeah, there's some of the things I, I, but you know, it's really, you know, nothing's really polarizing. No, Um, there's a great book, you know, I think you'd like by George Megalogenis. He's an Australian economist, wrote for the Australian and stuff, um, and he wrote a book called The Australian Moment. Right, and it's it's an analysis of the last say forty years of Australian history, but he uses the hard data, so it's great because it's about all these policy moments where we're all just guessing, really. Yeah. You know, Tony Abbott's guessing, I'm guessing he's wrong, but we're all guessing. Yeah. And so George Megalogenis goes back and sees who was right. Uh-huh. It's great. It's so amazing. And sees how policy actually changes the face of the nation, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, maybe this can be our, our decade. Well, this is the thing, is that we have this opportunity to show the world of like, here's what true multiculturalism, true multiculturalism can be. Mm. Here's what living carbon neutral can be. Yeah. Here's what being living in a sustain because we're a small enough population that we can action yeah. these kind of things. Yeah. We really can. Yeah. It really can happen when you look at countries which have enormous population pressure on their small, tiny, witty landmass yeah. with no natural resources, who are, you know, enormously far more, you know, have much bigger GDP than we do. Yeah. They've got nothing to dig out. They're using brain power. I know. But that's our trouble, I think. I think we're not under enough pressure. Right. You know, I think China is, is very invested in 
you know, finding clean energy because people are dying. People are dying from you know, air. Right, you know, <laughs> because their infant mortality rate's going up and not down, you know. So they yeah. have that pressure that has mobilised them. I think, again, we're, we're, too, we're so lucky. We're too lucky. I don't know. No pressure. We just kind of plod along. And look at look at look at the, you you are you have views that would you're ex triple Z announcer yeah. you have you have views that someone consider revolutionary and you're about to be on the largest breakfast radio show yeah, in yeah, one yeah. of the biggest Commercial. cities in the country yeah but you know there is the the power of that is that I get to talk to you about Aboriginal issues you know yeah I get to uh, I get to tour with the Dalai Lama when he comes to Australia I get to go to Aboriginal communities outside of Catherine. And be a visitor, you know. So yeah, there's so much. It gives me so much to do my own subversive stuff. Yeah, you know. And the words, in the words of Russell Brand, break into the machine and and rebuild it from within. Yeah, yeah. And also, Nova Melbourne is really. We've got a great general manager, a lady Helen, and she's really, she's really into this stuff too. So when I go to her, hey, let's have a work experience program for Aboriginal students. She goes, yeah, let's, you know? Oh, wow. And when I go to Kath O'Connor, who runs the entire company. She's great. Yeah. Right? And I go, hey, Kath, there's this media alliance that's about uh, trying to bring Indigenous kids up through the media, you know, and train them and, and get them involved in the media. She goes, yeah, we're going to sign it. So, you know, it is, it's a big corporate giant. I mean, Lachlan Murdoch was one of the first people to sign to Generation One, you know. So it's a corporate giant, but... What's the Generation One? It's, you know, a commitment to be the generation that changes the relationship between black and white Australia, you know. It's just a beautiful idea, and he signed to the idea, you know. And so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of heart yeah. in there as well. So... We have been talking a lot about politics, which I love. Yes. Uh, I don't know enough about it to talk about it. My big brother is far more... Far really? More, well, he's an economist and he's so <laughs> Oh, smart. great. Okay. Yeah, well, he's, oh, he's yeah. very, very, very smart. Yeah. So I, I, I have a layman's, you know, view of the world. And I, I just... I just I, all I know when I have these conversations is I don't know enough. I don't enough... But I none of us do. I don't know enough to form a proper opinion. And, but I'm just really interested. Yeah. In, and this is a really incredible opportunity to find a solution. Yeah. Wow. How can we do this? And then, and then show what we've done, and then take it to Peru, where the the pressure on the indigenous population and try to save their culture. Wow. There's so many opportunities. Well, that's for, the interesting thing too. For us as a country. So many indigenous issues are international. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you go to Alaska. Their indigenous issues can be very similar to those that we have in, you know, Broome. But as you said, there's no solution that works for every community, no. but there but can be... But that struggle between, yeah. you know, the indigenous community and the newer community is yeah. universal. It's so... I'm just fascinated that I, I really believe that I'm, I'm going to be alive to see enormous changes... In, yeah. this, in this area uh, as we grow to a global society. Well, that's I'm good. really thrilled that we're going to see that. I feel we're really going to see well, it. Well, you know, you've got an opportunity with your podcast because I do feel a bit self-conscious about two whiteies sitting here talking about <laughs> Aboriginal culture and issues and stuff. But, I mean, you've got, you know, a great opportunity with your podcast. Well, I, I, I guess, you know, I've, I'm, I'm an immigrant and I've always, you know, thought of myself as that. And yeah. I'm the child of two immigrants who were both once refugees. Yeah. And so I'm... Always incredibly great. I'm, it took me a while, actually. To, I remember the day I was like, hang on, I'm the luckiest motherfucker. I'm so fucking lucky. Mm. I'm white. I'm male. Yeah. And I live in Australia. Yeah. I've got the triple threat. Yeah. And I think when you know it's luck, <sighs> that just puts you in such a positive position. When you know you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, 
necessarily, you know, it's not, you're not It's not blessed. a No. <laughs> when, you, when you come from a place of luck, it just changes everything. That was the other thing Buddhism gave me, you know. This guy, Eddie, who was my teacher in Brisbane, said once, we're lucky to have been born human. Yeah, right. And once you realise you're lucky to be human, I mean, <laughs> that puts everything in a different perspective, you know? Yeah. Now, going back to Breakfast Radio, you, you had, as you mentioned earlier, you lived in Brisbane uh, after Melbourne, you went up to, to Nova. How yep. much time have you got? I want to let you go so you've got enough time. I've got about another 20 minutes. I've got plenty of time. Great. Yep. All right, I'll have you done. Um, you did seven years. You opened Nova 100 in, no. I opened Gosford first. They sent me to Gosford off All Broadway. Right. Wow. Yeah, to open a station there called Star 104.5. All right. Well, that's that's what radio do, does. Yep. They, they, they send people off-Broadway, off as it were, to go yeah. and get the chemistry up, get, yep. the, get it, make it soup. See if you can do it and yeah. see if you can, like, do the mornings. Some people can't get up at half past four and cope, you know. And I, I mean, I don't cope well a lot of the time. Some people just can't. But they sent me to Gosford and Chrissy Swan to um, the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And Chrissy and I became great friends at that stage over the phone because we were both wanting to get home to Melbourne so badly and yeah. both a certain kind of woman, you know, and, um, and and we knew that we were actually both competing for the Brisbane job. Ah. You know, we kind of knew that. And then, yeah, so so I, I got it, but then she just threw her hands up in the air and came back to Melbourne and got great jobs anyway. So that was inspiring to me. I thought, God, look at her, just doing what she bloody wants to do and living where she wants to live and life works out, it's fine, Yeah, you know. Yeah. How was it being in Brisbane? It was hard. It was really hard. My attitude was bad, really bad. Um, because I did think I was better than it. I did think that like, I'd, I'd achieved a lot in comedy, you know, and then I got there and no one knew. You travelled the world. You yeah. Had, you had the show The Hall Whisperer. Yep. Which had travelled right across the world. Yeah. Um, great reviews. All over the planet. Sold out the... Opera House, not the main room, but the one of the, the studio, whatever. Still, the Opera it's House. Just, it's yeah, you the Opera House for three weeks. But you, you, know? went, you went to Edinburgh. You, you, yeah, you did the thing. You were doing what great stand-ups do. Yeah, and in our industry, I was getting the respect mm-hmm. for that. You know, but then you move into commercial radio in Brisbane. No one, no one knows about that. No one cares about that. And so. There's traffic on old Cleveland Road, Laurie. Yeah. Be relatable. And it's about going to some function with the girl who does the news on Channel 9 and a football guy. And I'm like, nah, I don't... What's this rugby league thing? Yeah. But then, actually, it gave me the love of sport, Brisbane yeah. Breakfast Radio, because I started meeting sports people and thinking, oh, gee, I've been, I've been a real mole about you guys. <laughs> I have really written all of you off as dumb, meat-headed, you know guys that I don't want to know anything about. And then I meet some people like Jonathan Brown from the Brisbane Lions and Sam Thiday from the Broncos who are brilliant, funny, great guys, you yeah. know? So it changed me in a lot of ways, but it wasn't until I left and I fought badly with the guys who were on the show with me. We all hated each other. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> it, it is, <laughs> I talked with Jonesy about this. Yeah. It is... Uh, it is like the most one of the most intimate jobs you can do yeah. is to be Breakfast Radio because you're expected to share personal emotion and personal experience in a room about as big as a space capsule yep. for three hours a day, five Every days day. a week, and with two hours, an hour before and an hour after, we are just in each other's face, and you're bringing those emotions about the shitty day you had or the great day you had, yeah, and you're. In there with sleep deprivation, yes, with yes. the pressures of you going out the night before, perhaps having a few drinks, and then you've had four hours sleep or yeah. two hours sleep, and then you're not your best self. If it doesn't, 
if it goes sour, it's a very small room to deal with that. How did you deal with that when it went? We all had our ways, but I mean, it was, there was rehab, there were marriage breakups, there were, <laughs> but, you know, in that small room, a lot went down, a lot went down. And we kind of um, all just coped with it in our ways. I coped with it by developing workaholism. Um, and just flying back and forth to Melbourne and Sydney as much as I could to try and keep some kind of national profile going. Like I said before, just thinking every day, what can I do today that will help me get back to Melbourne faster? So I'd come down and do comedy festivals and do the show down the line from Melbourne and just worked myself to death. That was how I coped with it. How many days a week were you doing the show down the line? Oh, sometimes I'd do it for three weeks at a time. Oh. Um, sometimes I'd be back and forth. Well, I was going to say, because uh, that was the Wendy and Mooney. Yeah. Uh, uh, Peter Moon and, and Wendy Harmer famously didn't get on. Yeah. And so Peter Moon lived in Melbourne. Yeah. And he was just down the line. So it you helps. don't have to sit in the same you room. You don't have to. And, and you, you don't only to... talk when you're on air. Yeah. You don't have to chat between songs and you don't have to... Yeah, it makes a big difference. But, yeah, so I just... But ultimately, it's not the best way to do that kind of radio No. Show. You really need to be in the room. You do. And you need to like the people you're with or at least, you know, have an attitude that... I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna let this. I'm not gonna fight with these people. I'm not gonna let this turn sour. Was it like the Metallica movie? Did they bring someone? You in? know, it's so funny because I saw some kind of monster, and I thought, oh my god, this is us. And I went and bought three copies, and I gave them to each of the boys, <laughs> and it was a real bonding moment for us actually. And and they all went home and watched it that day, and we all came back the next day, and we laughed, and and we'd bring it up a lot. It was like the thing we had between us, you know to talk about what about, oh, God, this reminds me of Lars selling his art collection, you know, whatever. Or when the therapist starts to contribute lyrics. Yeah. (laughs) It talks about us sacking him. All that, you know, when James comes back from rehab and can't work the way he used to work and all of that, we really related to that, you know? Yeah. Mm. Now, I know you've experienced uh, this industry that we work in, Mm. uh, very gratefully, is seasonal. Mm. Sometimes jobs are there. Yeah. Sometimes jobs aren't there. Mm. Have you, in your career to this point, have, how, how do you cope when the jobs aren't there compared to how you used to cope when the jobs aren't there? Well, yeah, I used to get depressed. I used to just crumble, you know. In 2007, I remember it clearly, I, I, just, I was doing the radio, but it was the jobs interstate that kept me uh, coping with the radio, thinking I was actually ashamed of that job. I was ashamed that I was doing breakfast in Brisbane. I was embarrassed because my friends were doing other great jobs, you know, and I had this Brisbane job and I thought I was better than that. Um, so it's a terrible attitude. And then when I had no jobs in Melbourne for a year, I just sunk into a terrible, terrible depression. Um, but luckily that's when I committed to Buddhism. That's when I thought i got to do something. I tried everything I could think of, nothing worked. And uh, so, yeah, I started studying Buddhism seriously and that lifted me. What would you say to people who've never even blinked at Buddhism, what would you say, how would you explain it? I would explain it as something that you probably already reckon a lot of it. That's what people keep telling me. And I remember thinking that too, like, you know, you just go and read one of those great introduction to Buddhism books, millions of them. And I find a lot of people think, oh, I reckon that already. I already reckon that. So quite apart from the mystical side of things and whether we have, you know, whether we're born again into other lives or whatever, or whether you could be born as an animal, forget all that. If you go to the straight philosophy, you know, it's just about doing the right thing and uh, that's it really. Just being kind, be nice to people uh, and always trying to do the right thing by them. 
That's it. I remember I went to a place called Chenrezig, which is in uh, in Yudla. Sunshine Coast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing place. I went yeah. and did a retreat up there and I met this uh, amazing Buddhist nun. Her name was Dei Kili. And it's the only Tibetan Buddhist nunnery outside of Tibet. And she sat me down and she told me all this stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I already know that. That's it, right? Yeah. Like somewhere deep inside me knows that if I do good stuff, good stuff will come. If yeah. I do bad stuff, bad stuff will come. Yeah. It's not rocket surgery. And also that all these emotions are down to me. You're not making me angry. I am making myself angry because you're triggering this and that and this and that in So me. when did you unlock the, oh, I'm the one who's disagreeing with Breakfast Radio. Yeah, Breakfast yeah. Radio isn't disagreeing yeah, with me. Yeah, these guys aren't, these guys aren't killing me. <laughs> I am killing myself with my bad attitude, thinking I'm better than them. And, you know, all that uh, really quickly, really quickly, because I, I was going to classes like twice a week. So really within a couple of weeks, I exhaled, but kind of was able to open my eyes again, come out of the depression uh, and just approach things differently. And immediately what I got back was different. Immediately, you know, and I read the book, the the Dalai Lama's book, uh, The Secret of Happiness at Work. He's got a specific one about work. Just changed everything so quickly. All of a sudden I'm getting along with the boys. They're okay. You know, we're not fighting. We're having a laugh. It's gentle. It's Nice. And, and how did your career shift once that energy shifted? It fired up again. Yeah. Phone started ringing. <laughs> yeah. And isn't I approached wild? everything differently. Yeah. yeah. It's wild, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Like when my, I, I, was, I was unemployed for the first six months this year. Wow. Like yeah. Everything just kind of petered out and then finally stopped. Mm. I was like, wow. Well, it was another really powerful Buddhist thing that I learned is um, you take whatever it is that you've got a complaint about where you're righteously indignant, mm. particularly, and you put the words, of course, in front of it. Mm-hmm. I've just lost this job. Of course I've just lost this job. Mm. She wants a divorce. Of course she wants a divorce. Mm. Instantly, it allows me to see, oh, right, I get to see my role in it. Mm. I get to see her perspective mm-hmm. or their perspective. Of course they don't want me to host a show anymore. I'm out of the demo. I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah. re, I don't reflect at all what's going on in the music I'm talking about. I'm nearly forty. <laughs> I shouldn't be hosting a pop music show. <laughs> yeah. Of course, yeah. and I'm, it was just, a, and it was gone. Yeah, but in the old days, that would have, I oh, would have been resentful for a year. Yeah, absolutely. I would have drank at it and yelled at it. And yeah, yeah, and then you're reacting differently to other people too. You're engaging in the world. So freeing. Man. Yeah, so freeing. My word was opportunity. I had the same. It was like, what's the opportunity in this? And I still think of, of that. I didn't get the job. What's the opportunity? The opportunity is I can do that other thing I want to do. Right. Mm. Now, I did read your website. Mm-hmm. I did read your blog. Mm-hmm. You blogged about me. Did I? You did. What did I write? You wrote about my marriage falling apart. Did I? You did. What did I say? I don't remember. Really? I'm so worried. No. Are you sure? Yeah, I don't have to read it because I don't want to gazump you. No, do, 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 do. It's an opportunity. And I wrote, of course she thinks that. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I don't want to read it. I'll tell you off air because I don't want to because I'm people there. Because well, you might have written it at a time when you, you may not have. Oh, look, you know, the thing about it is If you can't that... remember it, you probably wrote it at a time in Brisbane where you probably weren't in the oh, darkness. And then so maybe. it wouldn't be fair to... Yeah, but also, look, you know, it's good to... Like, I'm not perfect. I'm not... 
something people do when you kind of claim a religion, I find, is constantly throwing in your face that you're not very good at it, yeah. you know, and, and I'm not. Progress, not perfection, babe. Right. So <laughs> that's it. That, right. That's all we can try so for. So that's the problem is when you say I'm really into this philosophy, there's lots of times when you fail. There's yeah. lots of, I know, you know, that I fail. And, and yeah, I, I probably did write something about this stranger I don't know called Andy G who's like this guy with this funny girl's hair. All of a sudden he used to have a ponytail and now he's gone all slick and everything and... Yeah, I probably did write about this character I had in my mind. Yeah, right. You know, of who you were. And and I thought, didn't think of you as a human, you know. And we all do that a bit. You do it in showbiz for a joke. For yeah. Life. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's okay, you know. We're, we're, I don't, don't want to – it's fine. Well, obviously I apologise. No, 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 also, no, no, don't. And, and this is why I don't want to – I don't want to bring it up because – God knows when I was in darkness and when I was in depression and I struggle with depression, I struggle with anxiety. Um, yeah, right. And uh, I now do it. I'm just like stone cold now. Same, yeah. I don't, do, I don't have anything in my system to help me cope um, because it was making the world just a bit too numb. Yeah. And I needed that for a while and it really served its purpose. But after all, I'm like, you know what it was? It was dating. I was dating and I'm like, why is there no spark? Oh, it's because I'm looking at the world through a sponge because I needed that for a while. Yeah. I just had to turn the volume down and everything because I was reacting like I was touching electric shocks with everything. Yeah. But then when I was dating and I was just getting no spark, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to try life without this. Because you weren't sparking, I guess. Well, it was kind of like looking at the world through a dirty pair of sunglasses. Mm. It's like, yeah, it's mostly there, but I just can't quite see it clearly. Mm. Or, or trying to see the world through a translucent shower curtain. It's like, yeah, it's there. Mm. It looks the same, but I can't quite touch it. And it took about, it took about three months. But I work with my doctor and, you know, slowly, slowly after, over about 10 weeks, you know, kind of less and less and less and less until it was nothing. And then, um, and now... But he's like, if you're going to do this, you have to do everything else 50% harder. Yeah. Like your, your, your spiritual practice, your fitness, all your rationalization, your writing, everything is just going to have to ramp. You can't continue. Yeah. If we take this aspect of your treatment away, you can't go on just doing everything else the way it is. Everything else has to go through the roof. So I've, like, I do yoga every day. Yeah. I ride my bike back to work every day. Like yeah. fitness is my thing. I eat clean. I, I, I'll fill exercise books full of just shit thoughts that shouldn't be in my head. I have to write it out yeah. so it gets out of my skull. And, but I work really hard at it. Yeah, you've got intense practice. I have to. I have to have discipline. And this is how I managed to cope with it. Because it was so bad. I, I wouldn't leave the house. All right. I wouldn't leave the house mm. if it wasn't for work. So why, um, like, if you read, I wish you'd tell me now what I said. How did you overcome that and want to talk to me and be nice to me if I wrote something nasty I about only read your it yesterday. divorce? I only read it yesterday. Why didn't you ring me and, like, what did you feel? Didn't, did you want to ring me and say, I can't make it? No, not at all. Really? No, I really wanted to talk to you, actually, because I get it. I totally get that. We, I'll tell you what you wrote. Yeah. Um, you wrote a blog... Um, and you wrote a blog about me and my, my wife splitting up. And it was, I totally understand, because it was of the vein of uh, these people are pretty. Uh, and you write, I feel sorry for p- people too beautiful to share their ugly. Oh, yes, yes, yes. 
and I totally oh, how get judgmental it. that no, I thought that but was I get you. It, I get it. Of course, you felt that way. Oh, I, I do feel that way, but but oh, that's judgmental that I thought that was no, you. But it's fine. It's okay. It's totally fine because I totally mm. get it. I totally see how it would have looked like that. Mm. Because no one's to know what was going on. No. no one, none of us are to ever know what's going on. No. But we shouldn't write that we think we do. I feel terrible. But I don't. I, and this is what I didn't want to tell you. I didn't. I didn't. No, but I'm glad you did. Wow. I didn't want to make. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. I feel kind of bad that I did. Don't, because I'm actually astounded by the the depth of your practice. Honestly, I'm actually looking at you, thinking, how deep is your practice in terms of your eating clean and cycling and, and keeping your head where you want it to be? I have to. If I don't have discipline, I'm. But how it's so successful. You're very successful at it. If I had, I mean, I, I separated from my husband a year ago. He moved back in last the other week. Congratulations! Weekend. Thank you. But I mean, wow. had I read that you wrote, well, let me tell you what's going on there. <laughs> I know what her problem is. She's too pretty to share her ugly with her husband. I mean, I would at least have been fucked off. <laughs> wow, I got to cycle more, man. I but I, I get gotta, it. But I get it, Michelle. I get I get why people. Think the things they think about me. None of it's true. Yeah, I know. I know what I am. Yeah, wow. And and I know what I am. And I, you know, people write shit on Twitter as they do, and that's fine. But they don't know me. But it's interesting because I guess I think my reaction to I I try really hard to show people who I really am all the time. It's like an obsession. I don't have the dignity that you have to just ignore it. That yeah, I'm like, and I think that's why radio is perfect for me too, and blogging and all that is to try and not let anyone. Mis, have misconceptions about who I am and not get it, you know? Um, yeah, but I'm really struck by your dignity in going, well, you know, people think I'm something and I can't control it. And Look, it's in the old days, people think I'm something and I'm going to go and drink two six-packs and then go yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. then, and then <laughs> drink a bottle of red wine and sit in my house alone mm. and then brood for days and not leave. Mm. And that's what I used to do. That's how I used to deal with it. It wasn't very healthy. It wasn't no. leading me to a good place. But it's so hard so to I get out that. of that. It's so hard <laughs> oh, I to get out of that. Life's fucking great now. Mm. It was, I believe it was Lao Tzu who said, be careful of w- which direction you are going. You may just end up there. Yeah. And I could see where I was going. I'm like, mm, I can't do this anymore. Wow. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I'm... March, be four years in March, but it's a, it's like, I, I look at it like a gold medal for the Olympics. Mm. If you want a gold medal in the Olympics, you watch what you eat, you train every day, you have a discipline, mm. you have a coach, you have a sports psychologist, you, you know, you, you, you observe your competition, you measure yourself yeah. with metrics, and you get better and better mm. and better and better and better. And that's how I look at my, my mental health. Yeah, because <laughs> that's that's I, this is how I have to deal with it. Yeah. And if I keep that s- together, jobs come, jobs go, money comes, money goes, but I'm okay. Mm. Because if I don't keep that together, when jobs come and jobs go, I'm fucked. Mm. And it's all going to end. Yeah. So I have to keep that. Mm. But that's how I have to live. You should be writing books. <laughs> I'm not joking. You really should. You that's have amazing. to go and I don't... I... We'll have to do this again now. Which bit? All of it, because there's so much more to talk to you about. I know there is. I'm there's dying. There's so much more to talk to you about. So just very, very quickly, yeah. the last time you did Breakfast Radio, in, you're about to replace 
one of the more iconic breakfast radio teams our country's ever seen in Hughesy and Kate. Yes. Uh, Dave Hughes and Kate Langbrook, they ran uh, Nova 100's breakfast show in Melbourne for 12 years. Um, incredibly so. And you have, you and, uh, head injury, TL. Tommy Little. Tommy Little. Yes. Thank you. Um, you and Tommy Little are about to come in to do that. Now, the last time you did breakfast radio, I'm sure there was a mental list. If I ever do this again, I'm yep. going to... Yep. <laughs> did you check things off that list when you were putting this show together? Oh, yeah, I did. And actually, just there was just one thing. It was just that the, the other person was nice. Yeah. <laughs> and he is. Right. You know, everything else can be overcome as long as... As long, not that the boys in Brisbane were nice or anyone's not nice. It was more just just a com- compatibility. You know, Tommy's a very gentle person. Um, he's not combative. That's not his style. It's relaxed. That those were, I guess, what I I needed yeah. it to be. You know, but as far as like how how are you like going into? You've got kids now. I know, it's hard. The alarm goes off at 3.45. Everything's I've been doing it for two weeks. It's hard. Oh, I don't have kids. Man, everything's harder with kids and I keep forgetting that I can't because I used to work to a really high level. I worked real hard, you know, and, and worked on no sleep and all that and I just can't work to that level anymore and that's really hard for me. It's upsetting. It gets me down sometimes. You know, so I'm trying to do what you're doing. I'm trying to. Yeah, but I'm selfish. I don't have to worry about I anybody know, else. But... I don't have to worry about a husband and two children. But I have to be disciplined. That's what. I, that's that's my big challenge is discipline in terms of taking care of myself. But be surprised when you have that. When you give yourself, this is all the canvas I get to paint on. Yeah. You'd be surprised what can come your way. Look, I've had quinoa porridge every morning for the last week. <laughs> That's my start. <laughs> That's where I've started. I wanted to have a green shake every day, but I kind of forgot. And then it was really hard. And I saw yours on Instagram and I'm thinking, is he making them the night before? Yeah, I do. You do? Is that I okay? He's supposed I read to drink that them it, straight away. Yeah. But I, I, I mix them up probably about 8 o'clock at night and I'm drinking them by 4.30. Okay. All right. I'm going to try that this week. This week, yeah. quinoa porridge and I'm making a green shake, a green thing smoothie every night and need. Are you doing Bricky already? Are you yeah, on? we started last week. We're just doing a few weeks now before Christmas. Off-Broadway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We live in the most exciting time in Australian radio in history, and you're a part of it. Yeah, I am. I'm very lucky. <laughs> very I can't lucky wait person. to see what you make of this opportunity. Thank you. I can't wait to see what you do next. I can't wait to read your book. <laughs> but you have to read about the discipline. The discipline. Your dignity is astounding. I'm too... I'm too I don't know what to say except thank you. <laughs> I'm going to take your photo now. Oh, sure. Oh, Excellent. heaven. You take beautiful right. photos. Okay, let's go. Hang on. And that's what happened when I sat down with Michelle Laurie in Footscray. She's on Twitter, at Michelle, M-E-S-H-E-L underscore Laurie. You can find her there. Uh, let her know you heard her here on the show. Um, she's so sweet. She's such a lovely, lovely woman. I'm just over here wanting to stab myself in the eyeballs with some of the things I said, but um, that's okay winning any gold medals I'm just I try and oh fuck why do I even bother trying to explain myself if I can't trust that you got what I was getting at then I just have to let it go so I'm just going to trust that you got what I was getting at and I'm going to let it go yeah well at least I'm going to try and see how that works um we got pretty deep there there's stuff that I've never spoken to anybody about publicly so I hope that's okay. Um, If it's not, I guess I'll find out tomorrow. (laughs) Um, But thanks so much for listening. 
Thanks for being a part of this show. If you need anything, you can find me on Twitter at Osher Ginsberg, O-S-H-E-R underscore Ginsberg. And uh, if I've accidentally blocked you on Twitter, just leave me a note on Instagram and I'll unblock you there. Hey, thanks for being here. Without you, there's no show. It's that simple. So thank you so much. Hopefully the lung butter will clear up by tomorrow or Tuesday and I'll be able to get back on the bike. And then uh, we'll be back on program. Back into the practice. Back being able to sleep. <laughs> All right. You're amazing for being here. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things, all right? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.